we are picking up where Ryan left off last week, which was the reign of King Solomon, and there's about to be a kind of a radical shift, a radical change that is about to happen because of King Solomon's failure to obey what God told him to do. And uh, so I, I don't, I want to kind of start with a little bit of a bigger picture, something that I'm continuing to see and continuing to grow in and continuing to understand and appreciate. Um, and that's this, that God, when we talk about his faithfulness, it's good for us to think about like what we mean when we actually say that. God is faithful. And I, 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 most Christian people, they, amen, he is so faithful. To what? Right? To what? To what is God faithful? Well, to his promises. Amen? Amen. Okay, what are the promises? Right? So what are those promises? And so that's what we're going to be, be looking at tonight because sometimes when we think about God being faithful to his promises, all we think about are what I'm going to call like the upside of that, that God would never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? That God would be our provider and our protector. Amen. That if we choose to rebel against him, that he will justly and firmly punish us. Uh, that, that God will discipline us. Even in the midst of him working out his way in our lives. Ah, uh, wow, I don't. Like honestly, when you hear about the faithfulness of God and that you can trust him, it's usually just the upside, isn't it? Right? And, and actually, there is something actually broken. Uh, if I were to say to you, um, when I was a child, I, I made sure that my dad only gave me things and only let me do whatever I wanted and was really affirming in everything that I hear parents say this all the time. And I know the number one thing I need to do is support my kid no matter what. And I look at them and I go, I, I don't know if you're meaning the same thing I'm meaning, but I haven't promised my kids that. I've actually promised my kids, if there's one thing you can count on, is I will not support you no matter what. Like there's something bigger that actually is holding this family together instead of you, right? And even when most parents mean that, they really don't even mean that. And I'm all for supporting. But when you think about what's happening, it's God's promises, Yahweh God's promises, but they are tied directly to covenant. And I know you might be saying, man, Jim, you talk about this all the time, whether it's Jesus or whether it's Abraham, uh, whether it's Moses, all you talk about are covenants. I'm going, I know. And the more I have to study or listen to Ryan teach, the more that I realize that's really what the Bible's all about. And it just keeps going back to this over and over and over and over again in terms of how we can talk about the faithfulness um, or the predictability. We don't like that word when we think of God, but the predictability of God to what? To his covenant, to what he actually says. And that's really what is unfolding here as the kingdom is about to go through a really, really difficult time with Solomon rebelling against and, and, and God promising that, hey, here's what I've done and here's where I'm going and this is what's going to happen. So it would be good for us then to be aware that God makes a covenant with Adam and tells him to go and to, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. 
and God makes a covenant with Noah, more of a, a general covenant. God promises I'll never flood the earth again. Um, God makes a, a covenant with, with, uh, with Noah. And then the big one that actually hits, which really does stand different, is to Abram, uh, to Abram, and he makes a covenant with him. And he says, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your people, and I'm gonna take you to a place, and I'm gonna give you a land, and I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna make you into a great nation, and I will bless all the people in the world through you. That's his promise to Abram. Changes his name to Abraham. Uh, father, father of many is kind of how that develops. And then the next major covenant that we have is not to him. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say to Israel, but when I say Israel, I, the, we call it the Mosaic covenant. And so it's Moses, Mosaic law. And that is given at Mount Sinai. So here is what, and this one here is deeper, richer, wider, longer. It's got more caveats to it. It's got more explanation to it. And so God says, now, hey, Israel, here's what I want you to do. And so most of these are pretty much, hey, go out and be fruitful. Hey, go out and multiply. Go out and order the world. To Abram, here's what I'm going to do for you. Any questions? This one is different. This one comes along and says, and and. Notice how critical this is. We're gonna, and if you have your Bibles, just turn. We can't read it all. There's so much I wish I, I I'd probably do better if I just read to you the stories tonight because they're fascinating. So hopefully I'm gonna highlight them enough that you'll catch what's going on. To Israel, God basically comes along and says, here is what I want you to do. And in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29, it lists these blessings and curses for the people of God, for his people, Israel, as they enter the land, and if you go back, I mean, don't just take, never just take my word for anything. Go back and read, search the scriptures, and make sure that I'm, what I'm saying is true. And what the Deuteronomy uh, writer describes, what, what, uh, what happens in Exodus, what happens in the following books, and Joshua, and Judges, and those things, it's so that you might live long in the land. One of the great commandments says that. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God promised to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and gives to you. So covenantal faithfulness actually has a bit of a condition. Go and do, go and do. I am going to do for you. I'm going to do for you. Here is what I expect from you. And in that, in order to stay long in the land, and to experience God's blessings and provision, he gives a rather detailed and comprehensive explanation of, expe of expectations that come with a series of blessings and a, a series of curses. We'll talk about that extensively today. And then after that, we've got one more major covenant that we're actually going to see, which is to King David. So these are the major covenants that we run through. So Genesis 1, Genesis 6, Genesis 12, uh, Deuteronomy all over the place, okay? You could maybe, uh, the Exodus encounter at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, and then to David in 1 Samuel when he says, I'm gonna make you a, a great king uh, of a great nation and there will always be someone on your throne. Um, one thing that I found kind of interesting 
is that these seem to be pretty much, these seem to be pretty much go and do. These two seem to be, this is what I'm going to do through you because of, because of your obedience to me, of your love for me, and of what my, I ultimately have a plan for. And then this one here, which is truly to an entire nation, stands somewhat different. I think you need to be aware of that, that there's something that is um, comprehensive and detailed. This is the one that usually throws us. Okay? To show you how important this can be, actually, is on, on Wednesday mornings, I meet with a number of college students, and it's particularly after this past Sunday sermon when I was trying to explain how the law works, a student said to me, and you've probably thought this, I know I have, he said to me, now, when, it, when the Bible describes different commands of God, and then now all of a sudden command and law are synonymous, which they really aren't biblically, Okay, so it's, they're not always synonymous, the commands of God and the law of God. Um, and he says, and, and by the way, all of, all, of, all of the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. So if all the Bible is God-breathed, then shouldn't we follow it all? I mean, how many of you have kind of thought that or heard people talk about that? We should follow all of it. That's why we need the Ten Commandments in every courthouse in America, amen, right? Even though we're not gonna follow most of those, Okay. Um, I find this interesting, that I asked him, have you ever thought, wow, God commanded that we would leave our land and he will take us to a new land so that he will make us into a great nation? How many of you have thought, I better get moving? And I asked these, these young men this, why didn't you do that? I mean, it's a command of God and all the scriptures God breathes, so why didn't you do that? To which they intuitively said, well, because that was to Abram, correct. That was to Abram. So question, then why do we wrestle with Deuteronomy and Leviticus so much? Why is it that we read the commands of God, we go, yeah, but that was written to the people of God and we're the people of God, right? You see, so I, I get where they're coming from, and I'm not even saying, hey, since, since the 10 commandments were not written directly to me, I can do whatever I want. That's not what I'm insinuating at all. But when you look at the totalitarian, or the, the, the total, the, the, the sum product of the Mosaic law, rightly, we should be able to discern, like this was written at a different time and a different place. Again, beautiful insight into the character and the nature of God and this light that is shining on us is good. It's not bad. It is helpful to understand God's character, his, ex, his, ex, his expectations for his people. But in light of the bigger picture of what God is doing ultimately through Jesus Christ, the law, which still shines at some level, fades in comparison to the bigness of who God is. And that's what should happen, actually. And so I want us to a, recognize what's going on here and say, listen, as I talk about this, this is why we can get into trouble when we go back and we claim some of the promises made here for ourselves, some of, the, some of the blessings or curses that comes in this, I've seen Christian people name it and claim it. And I love to ask, how's that working for you? And it usually isn't working for you. And then they wonder, I think God's bailed on me. Well, either that or you're, tr you're running around trying to cash checks he didn't sign. And he didn't. And this is the beauty. This is what we mean by, and now we have this new covenant, not written on stone tablets, but on men's hearts, Paul says. 
So he gives us a much deeper, more appreciative understanding of this new covenant that we actually have in Jesus Christ, okay? But that doesn't mean we can just neglect this. So for those of you that get wrapped up, and I'm one of those people, grew up in a church that loved the the law and the commandments of God, okay? And I'm really grateful for that heritage, okay? I want us to look at it and to realize it. And I want us to try to deduce, so then how does this more naturally apply to us? But realize we've got to take a journey as we try to apply it from Israel to America, from 1444 BC, when Moses wrote it, to 2016. And there's, that's a huge, 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 huge step. So just take a look real quick at Deuteronomy chapters 27, or sorry, 28 and 29. Um, and, and take a look at how God is very uh, straightforward. I mean, I want, there's a couple of sections that I just want to kind of read, and I'll, I'll let you know the verses as well. Verse, tw- verse 1 of chapter 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful. Now, that's a word that repeats over and over and over again which is kind of interesting because when I hear Christian people talk about the wonderful freedom that we have and the wonderful joy that we have in the Lord, it's a carelessness, okay? And by the way, we are not under law. I'm gonna keep stepping back into our Christian context. We're not under law. Uh, We don't have to be afraid of God's judgment because Jesus Christ has taken it all. All of that is true, okay? But the Bible, even in the New Testament, Jesus Christ says things like, be careful how you listen. That's what he says to his disciples. Be careful how you listen. So that carefulness is a reverence for the bigness and the goodness of God. And I want us as a church, my, one, of my, uh, one, of my, one of my desires uh, for me, a desire for my family, a desire for Sunnybrook, is that we work on, and I think this is a biblical concept, that we work on finding great joy and freedom and peace and celebration in the loving character of God and his amazing grace. And at the same time, have profound reverence and even the word that appears over and over and over again in these texts, fear of him. And that's why I like the book of Revelation, where John sees Jesus in his fullness and doesn't go, yo, J-Dog, how you doing? Been a long time, bro. That's not what he does. He literally sees Jesus in his splendor and the text says he falls down as though dead. That's what happens. So what, what is that? Jesus brings him up, right? So this concept is, I think it's, we only know how to do one or the other. We only know how to run around carelessly or sit kind of in that distant fear. And the beauty is the more that you understand the fullness of who God is, I believe you can run and play reverently. That you can sing like David, sing and dance out of great reverent fear for the creator of the universe. You know what I mean? You can boldly enter the throne of his grace, as the book of Hebrews tells us, uh, because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And when we enter boldly, we fall down in worship. <laughs> you see, the comp- like, that's how the Bible describes it. And that's the kind of God that we serve. So notice this. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. 
And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed be you in the city and blessed shall be you in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of the cattle. Literally undoing the curse. You will be blessed if you continue to do these things. And it continues on and on and on. Verse 15 of the same chapter. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city and cursed shall you be, be you in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be uh, you when you come in and cursed shall be you when you go out. Uh, and so it describes this blessing and cursed based on, and this is where it's, it's kind of important for us to see, is that the law is actually given. So here's, here's what Israel did not need to do. Well, I wonder if we were allowed to do this. I wonder if we were allowed to do this. So maybe we should be afraid because maybe we shouldn't do this. No, God says, here's what I want you to do. I've set before, that's a repeated phrase in Deuteronomy. I've set this before you so that you can experience joys and blessing. We talk about God being silent or God not being very clear and I'm going, seriously? Like he hasn't been clear. Now I know it's complicated, okay? But there's a lot here. There is a lot here that we can know. There's a lot here that he actually explains. We just don't take the time, or I don't anyway, I don't take the time as though I should to know him. Right? Because I got other things that are distracting me from this. So there is this carefulness there. And what is it? You will be blessed by obeying. And you will be cursed through disobedience. And he gives this proclamation to the people as they are entering into the land. So this is given all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. Now, my apologies to those who had to endure this on our Bible study on Tuesday, but I'm sorry, I ran into the same idea. I'm not just trying to milk my, uh, uh, my study for the week. If I were to say to you, and for those of you that were there Tuesday, please don't ruin this. If I were to say to you, what is evil in the sight of the Lord? What is evil in the sight of the Lord? Or what is evil? If I were to even say to you, um, as you probably remember, a president not that many years ago made a comment about evil and everybody just flipped out. How dare you call other nations evil? Okay, well, his argument was they were. But they are evil. But who are you? And we really do. We live in a culture that does not want to label things as evil. Because that just, and it is, it's a strong word, isn't it? Even coming out of my mouth, it seems like overkill. Evil? Like, what is evil? Like, we better be careful just throwing around that word, evil, because it's so serious. So what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Um, ordinarily, when we talk about what is evil in the sight of the Lord, we think of the really, 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 really bad things, Right? Um, this week I'm preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And so there are a number of things in there that are probably evil, adultery, evil. Um, uh, even if you love the person you're committing adultery with, it's still evil. Murder is evil, right? Child abuse, evil. Um, spousal abuse, evil. Uh, meth labs in your house that just destroy families, that's evil, right? So we have those things. Genocide, now that's racism is evil, okay? So we have all these evils that exist in the world. So if I were to say to you, there's someone who is profoundly evil, 
How would you kind of think about that person? Now, what's very interesting is, I want you to take a look at some of these verses in, in the Bible, um, and there were far too many for me to even begin to list here. So I kind of had to take a representation of it. The first one I want you to see is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25. So God's going to, and, and by the way, the Bible actually says, woe to you who call good evil and evil good. I, I, I think a lot about that verse in, in, in living at a time where there really is, and you know, it's our time, so it seems like it's the worst time. Uh, but it's been going on for a very, very long time when people begin to switch what good and evil is, right? This seems like the most intense time ever because it's when I live. But this has been going on for a very, very long time, that switch around, switching around between evil and good. Um, and so we gotta be careful. We need to call what is evil, evil. And in chapter, Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 25, this is how it's described uh, when, when you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and so to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess and you will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And when you are in tribulation and all of these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God, interesting. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And so if you were to look at that and then take a look at, I'm not gonna read the whole thing. Uh, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse one down through verse seven, I think this is, uh, it's kind of interesting in terms of how he describes it. Um, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep with a blemish. Verse two, if there is found any among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, making meth and selling drugs and doing bad things. Listen, Evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant. That's what's evil in the sight of the Lord, to transgress his covenant. And have gone over and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden. And then he basically says, I want you to find those people who do this, this terrible evil by worshiping an idol, and I want you to take them outside the city and kill them. If not, I'll come and kill you. So the evil that is described there and then where I stumbled into it on our, in our Tuesday Bible study is this is what happens in Judges 3.7. In Judges 3.7, the people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord and they begin to worship other gods. And so the question that I've been kind of wrestling with this week through this text and, and, and what we've been talking about on Tuesday is it's very interesting that when we talk about evil and we talk about ethics, that usually we get stuck on conversations about morality, about what is evil or bad, and what is good. 
And we seldom actually discuss, like, where does that come from? Like, where does evil things, where do these bad things actually come from? And the Bible gives a different response than most people. Most people don't recognize, like, where does all of this this evil, and by evil, the Bible describes it as covenantal unfaithfulness. Most commonly, idolatry. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I hear about evil if my number one thing I think about is idolatry. I don't think of that. I think of a host of other actions, little smaller actions that are done that are evil. That's what I think about when I think of evil. But what the Bible describes, and you're going to see this as the rest of the book of, uh, uh, not Samuel, Kings and Chronicles unfolds, is that this becomes the source of God's anger. And this becomes then the other source of bad behavior or bad actions. So what the Bible says, now I'm not, well I will ask you later to believe it, but right now I'm just gonna present it, okay? What the Bible actually says is that what separates good people from bad people is what they worship. What separates evil people from good people is not what they do, but who they worship. And that's, that's different, actually. That's something I'm usually not accustomed to be, to be thinking about. When I say what is evil in the sight of the Lord, it's usually a list of bad things. But when you just trace the word evil through Deuteronomy and through a lot of the, the pages of the Old Testament, it's like stuff that we don't get that upset about. Right? Like, hey, I didn't kill anybody. All I did was bow down to a golden calf. Like, what's the big deal? So, for example, let me just kind of ask you this question. I'm not asking you to be the one, I'm not asking you to be the agent of God's divine retribution. That's where I think sometimes the church makes mistakes and religious people make mistakes, is they become the ones who enact God's justice and God's vengeance. But the Bible actually says, no, I am the one who will do that, okay? But other religions, how does God see them? or our own self-righteous actions and our own idolatry as we pursue um, and the major thing that idols love to give, give people as we keep going back, we saw this in Revelation, provision and protection. So wherever you're finding those two things, that, that is how you know idolatry. And instead of trusting God for your provision and God for your protection, you trust Baal, or you trust Asherah, or you trust Moloch, or you trust IBM, or you trust USA, or you trust your own abilities and skills, or you trust the Dow Jones, and these things become the means by which we understand our identity and have security in the world. And God says, this is evil in my sight. And that's what's really at stake here. So I, I've never, I've always wrestled with like, Solomon, what is wrong with you? Why don't you get this? Why don't you understand this? And then I realized, like, why don't you get it, Jim? Like, why is it easier for you to forget that God is your provider and your protector? 
And that he is the only one, that everything else comes as an agent or under the sovereign care and the sovereign provision. And whether the Lord giveth or the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And there's something bigger that is actually going on, and I will not fear. And, and even though um, I, I, I want to worry about where am I gonna, what am I going to eat and what am I going to drink and what am I going to wear, that when I look at the lilies of the field, I realize that the Lord takes care of these things and I find peace. Is there anybody else in the room that just finds it natural to worry about provision and protection in our world today? Anybody else? Okay. Why? Now you know Solomon's dilemma and the dilemma of the people of Israel. Now that they have this incredible land flowing with milk and honey, and now that they have and they're living off of a king who who did very well, King David, and now we're in that moment, and I just need to go back. Ryan talked about it a little bit last week. I just want to kind of wrap this up. There is in Solomon, King Solomon, this major dividing rod in Israel's history. And what we see in King Solomon's reign is the covenantal judgment of God on Israel and the covenantal mercy of God on Israel. So you have the text there, 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 6. You actually have, and it's, it's, if you haven't read it, you really need to go back and read the story of the dedication of the temple. It really will help you get a feel for how easy it is for us to pray really bad prayers. Because I read Solomon's prayer and I go, wow, I, I pray that bad sometimes too. And you know it's interesting that, here, here's how you know you've prayed a bad prayer, okay? And by the way, you, you know you can have a bad prayer, Right? And by the way, I'm not talking about that you weren't reverent enough. I was a gentleman, he usually kind of sat in my little tiny little church in southern, uh, in southern Missouri. He usually sat right here. Andrea, remember him? Bud. Bud Doss. And Bud was one of the coolest guys I knew. Um, Bud was uh, kind of a rodeo guy and just a real uh, salt of the earth gentleman. Um, and just was just the most... He had the, kind of the squeaky little voice. He'd talk, and just like this. Just, and then every time, Bud, will you pray? And so Bud just always talking like this. How you doing? Dear God in the heavens, <laughs> hallowed be the name of Yahweh, our Lord. And I literally, it's like, who got inside Bud? <laughs> you know, and it was, I, I, honestly, I really kind of enjoyed it. But whenever Bud would speak, Bud all of a sudden, like, Charlton Heston just crawled inside of Bud. You know what I mean? And it was like a version of Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. It was just, so let it be written, so let it be done, you know? And so when Bud would talk, and I'm not talking about like kind of a bad prayer where you don't have a formula. Jesus warns about formulas. He gives us a way to pray, but he warns about formulas, okay? But when you go back and take a look, I don't have time to read it, but if you take a look at Solomon's prayer, he's made this incredible place. He is now dedicating it to the Lord. And, and, and in essence, what he says and it's recorded in both, both Chronicles and in Kings. He says this, and God, when we mess up, because we're gonna mess up, and when we make mistakes, because we're gonna make mistakes, I want you to look at this place that we have made for you, and I want you to remember your covenant, and I want you to remember, I want you to offer us mercy and kindness. I want you to, to forgive us for all the bad things that we do as these sacrifices go up. And, and so God, I just want you to remember that. I want you to look at this place, and I want you to, to just love this place that I have built for you. Which, remember, this is why it's good to go back and say when David went to God and said, I wanna make you a place, what did God say to him? Did I ask you to do this? 
Like if I ever complained about you not making me a place, I'm gonna make you a place. That's the the conversation. But tell you what, um, I'll let your son do this. But God never says, you know what, I need is a place. Like I need a place. Where, I mean, I love Stephen in Acts chapter seven. Like where, where could we build a place for the Lord? It's good for us to remember that we, so we don't turn this into a hallowed place. There's something actually very ungodly about doing those things. There can be special value and worth, but this place, I, it drives me crazy when people go, oh, I can't believe you said that in a church. You didn't need the in the church part. Do you know that? You could just end with, I can't believe you said that. You don't need the in the church part. Just don't talk like that. And so Solomon has this prayer, which I, I hear me pray sometimes. I hear other people pray. Hey, God, I want you to watch out for me, and I want you to take care of me, because I'm about to do some really bad, stupid stuff. Right? I, I mean, and, and Paul's on my side on this, but did you hear Peyton Manning's prayer? Or not his prayer, but his comments at the end? What are you going to do, Peyton? What are you going to do? Well, you know, first of all, I'm going to have a good time tonight. I got to thank the, the good man upstairs. And then I'm going to drink a lot of Budweiser. Know what I'm saying? He said that the, it was almost like it was rehearsed. What are you going to do? I'm going to thank the good man upstairs for all he's given me. And then I'm going to drink a lot of Budweiser. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, wow. Like that, I can just imagine God going, wow, mentioned at the Super Bowl. This is awesome. I used to just get John 3.16 signs, but now I got that, Right? But this is how, it's not just Peyton Manning, this is how we pray. Like, God, I'm making poor decisions. God, I'm really not tying into the covenant promises that you've made. Literally, Solomon's prayer is kind of going, if there's any way, God, can you just forget this other side? Here's how you can know you've you've actually prayed a really bad prayer. And that is when the Lord comes to you and speaks to you and corrects your prayer, which he does to Solomon. And it's interesting that the phrase is used on Solomon's rebellion, and and, and that's only mentioned in Kings. When Solomon rebels, it actually says, and he rebelled even though the Lord spoke to him twice. And I I never really noticed it until I had gone back and I thought, okay, so when did he speak to him twice? Hey, what do you want, Solomon? I'll give you all of these things. I want wisdom. God says, I'll grant it to you. And I'll grant you everything else too. And then Solomon prays this really bad prayer, basically asking God to only give blessings and then to look at the house and to think that it's gonna be okay. And God says, I'm not gonna do it. And God restates the Deuteronomic promise. God basically says to him, hey, just so we're clear, I love this text, just so we're clear, Solomon, I want you to know that if you obey my commands like your father David, and if you obey the covenant that I I have given to you, then you will stay long in the land. If you choose to neglect my covenant and to chase after other gods, then I will destroy this house that you have made for me. And not only that, I'm going to destroy it and scatter you in such a way that people are going to walk by this destroyed place and they're gonna go, what happened? And then others are gonna stand up and they're going to actually say, the Lord destroyed that place because those people decided to run after other gods. 
And the Lord spoke that to Solomon. And Solomon's plan after all of this was what? I think I'm gonna serve other gods, which is evil in the sight of the Lord. And Moses did, or sorry, Moses, Solomon, have I been saying Moses? I mean Solomon. Solomon did everything that he was warned not to do. And God came through exactly like he promised. And so God's judgment is coming down on Solomon. And so I want you to see this. The judgment is I'm going to tear away this kingdom from you. But when you're looking at what God is doing, here's what I love. Here's how to watch the sovereign hand of God, but God's not forgetting what he's promised. And God's not even forgetting what he's promised. And God is definitely not forgetting what he's promised. And what God is ultimately doing is remembering what he's promised, okay? And so it is, Solomon, it's, it's gonna cost you, and it's gonna cost you great. Like, you're going to be punished, and I'm gonna strip you away from this, and I'm gonna take away much of this nation from you. But because of my servant David and what he has done, and, and God would at times reiterate, and because of my faithfulness, that even though you are unfaithful, in this, and you walk through this, and it's even found in Deuteronomy 28. And even though you are faithless, you will face a curse because of your disobedience, but listen to this, our faithlessness does not derail God. And you need to remember that. Human faithlessness, human failure, human disobedience never stops the ultimate plan of God. And so there is a, also a covenantal mercy on Israel. So I love the fact that Solomon's rejection is not the final word. God comes along and he says, and yet, and this is a repeated phrase in uh, this particular section, and yet because of my servant David, I will not totally give up. There will still be someone on the throne, but you're not getting the whole thing. So turn to the second page, and uh, we're going to kind of run through. I just only have to do two kings tonight. The first one is King Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is actually, and if you want to just kind of keep track of, the thing, of these things, uh, Solomon is a good king who turns bad king, who may end up turning into a good king. Take a look at, well, don't turn there, but you might want to write down like Ecclesiastes 12. Um, it appears that at the end of the writing of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon writes, that there may be a turn that he takes near the end of his life. And so there's a lot of debate about whether or not he is a good king turned corrupted king, evil king, um, turned good king again. We, re we really don't know that uh, exactly, but it, there seems to be some inclination of this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. His son Rehoboam is a bad king. So when you think of Rehoboam, think bad. Bad, 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 bad king. Uh, Rehoboam is actually, so imagine right now the kingdom is, is, is all one, okay? So it's good to kind of think of north and south, okay? And so this is why it's always fun to preach in America because Canada's everything's east-west, so I don't understand the north-south comparison, right? Uh, but in the States, it's a little bit of a north-south dynamic, okay? And so you have there, uh, King Rehoboam goes up to Shechem, and he is proclaimed actually king there. And everybody comes out and they say, yes, we want you to be king. Now there was a guy named Jeroboam. 
And Jeroboam is uh, a guy that was working for Solomon, particular in Jerusalem. He was a kind of a noble, uh, kind of a, a bit of a political type person that was working for King Solomon. And as he is walking one day, the prophet walks up to him and the prophet grabs Jeroboam's cloak and tears it up into 12 pieces and says, take 10 of these for the Lord is going to give you these 10 things because of how evil King Solomon is. Now here's what's interesting. Chronicles doesn't tell this story. Remember I I told you this. Chronicles doesn't describe the Bathsheba and the wickedness of David. And the Chronicles doesn't like to talk about this side either. It doesn't mention the wicked side of King Solomon. Um, But Jeroboam is this guy, and uh, I guess at some level, kind of like, this is very similar to David and Saul, right? Solomon hears about this and tries to kill him, and he flees to Egypt. Jeroboam does. Solomon then dies, and Jeroboam actually returns. And he shows up on the scene in front of King Rehoboam, and he presents kind of this case to King Rehoboam, and essentially says what Deuteronomy promised, which is your taxes are too high. The way that you are treating us, you are putting a weight on us that is unsustainable, okay? So it's good to know that America is not the first place that has struggles and difficulties and wars over not just the heavy taxation, but I can't believe you're doing this. And so, Rehoboam, I want you to consider your, your father uh, just exploited the people, and I want you to relax that. And King Rehoboam says, give me a couple, give me three days, and I will consider this matter. And he goes and he talks to some, some wise men, some older men, and he says, what do you think I should do? And these men say, you should listen to him. You really should listen to him. You need to humble yourself. You need to cut back on taxes. You need to kind of uh, just realize that, yeah, what your dad did was wrong and he was taking things from the people and you need to listen to them and dial it back, okay? Kind of like a good Republican message, right? Uh, that's kind of what, less taxes, okay? So that's what, you, that's what you should be doing. And then, after that's all said and done, he says, well, wait a second, I got some buddies, some younger men, and the text seems to stress this older men versus younger men asking these younger men, what do you think I should do? And these buddies go, don't do it. Actually, if you give a little here, you have no idea what they're gonna do. And so if I were you, I would go to them and say, hey, you think my dad was hard on you? Wait till you see what I'm going to do to you. And what's interesting is the text seems to describe that the Lord is the one controlling all of this to bring about the judgment against the nation because of Solomon's evil idolatry of pagan gods. And so Rehoboam comes back and he says, I'm gonna treat you guys even worse than my father. Jeroboam and the rest of the tribes of the north then say, what do we have with David's house? Essentially saying, let's go. And every man to his tent. And Rehoboam and the northern tribes basically split away. And they now are getting ready for war. This is kind of interesting. So after Rehoboam takes the counsel of the, of the younger men, Jeroboam then leads this rebellion and they get ready for war. And what's fascinating is, is as these two nations get ready to have kind of their own civil war, God comes and he speaks to the southern king. And he says, don't do it. Actually through a prophet. Don't do it. Because the Lord has done this because of Solomon's wickedness. 
and what you need to do is just go home. Now, that idea is, is actually rather profound because one of the lessons that Israel has to deal with is not giving in to idolatry. And the other thing that they have to learn is taking their punishment. So number one, don't do this. Number two, now that you've done it, I need you to take your punishment. And it's interesting because that's kind of what happens as the prophets come on later and God is warning them of all these terrible things that are going to happen, um, Israel wants to fix it. Let me, no, 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 no. We don't want the punishment. We want to we try to fix this. And God's like, no, I need you to sit there and take it. I need you to humble yourself. And so the first thing, and, and think about this, right? How many of you, when you're parenting a child, don't do it. Don't do it because I'm going to punish you. Don't do, please don't do it. Please, and what do they do it? They just, I think I'm gonna go do it. My dad told me not to do it. Told me he'd punish me if I did it. So I'm gonna go do it. And now all of a sudden the child's in trouble and how many of you have had a child and when you start punishing them, now all of a sudden you've got a whole new fight on your hands. Can't believe you're doing this to me. I'm so, 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 so sorry. Please don't, please don't, please don't, please don't. Can I come out of my room now? Can I, can I be not grounded now? Can I be not, please can I be not grounded? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Anybody, right? And this is what people do. It's fascinating, because this is what's going on in Jeremiah 29. When God says through the prophet Jeremiah, after the exile, at the very end of this, the prophet says, settle down, build homes. You're not coming back for 70 years. And the people of Israel are going, no, we're just gonna sit here and pout. And God says, don't, you, 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 you don't listen to me, and then you don't take your punishment well. So this actually is kind of an interesting sign that when the prophet comes and says, don't fight Jeroboam, because this is me. I'm doing this. You've, it's, it's, already, it's already set. You're going to lose your part of the kingdom. And so Rehoboam does, he humbles himself. And he goes back, and now we have. So there's no civil war, literally. There's no, there will be battles that will actually happen, okay? But there's no civil war at this moment. Israel, the southern tribe, Judah, also with Benjamin and maybe with Simeon, uh, in terms of how those tribes are divided up, uh, basically swallows it and realizes we've just lost the entire northern region. So now let's talk about, and, and, and you don't really hear much about Rehoboam, okay? He's not a, not a famous, not a powerful king. The king now of the north, which is not related to King David in any way, shape, or form, he, first of all, you need to know this, he is appointed by God. As I said, a prophet came to him and said, God's going to do this to you. And what's fascinating is his response to this, <laughs> because it worked so well the first time, is to build a golden calf. Okay, think about that. And so it's, and by the way, the phraseology after he builds this calf, and if you look at the nation of Israel, it's actually more like that. And Jerusalem is down here, and the southern tribes pretty much just run, this is Judah, Beersheba, or Beersheba is way down south, and then you'll hear the phrase from Dan to Beersheba, meaning from north to south, okay? Uh, Seattle to uh, New York, kind of a scenario. From Dan, which is actually north of the Sea of Galilee near Lake Hulda, from Dan all the way to Beersheba, 
And then another major city, Shechem is here, Samaria is here, and then Bethel, I think is there. And, or no, I think it's below it. The temple is here, okay? The house that Solomon built. So just so you can understand Jeroboam's plan is these people are Jews. And where do they go to worship? And if they go there to worship, what are they gonna do? They're gonna join the South. We can't have that. So to fix this problem, what does he decide to do? He makes a golden calf, and he sticks the golden calf right there, and then he takes another golden calf, and he sticks it up there, and they are the two places where Israel, and here's what they say. This is just like Exodus 32. And behold, Israel, these are your gods that brought you, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt. That's what Jeroboam states. Seriously? You don't remember what happens when this goes, this always goes south. Golden calves are never a good idea. And this is his response. And it's interesting. God is the one that comes to him. And God is the one that says, I'm going to provide this for you. God actually even comes along and says to him, if you do this, if you follow me with your heart, he gives this promise to him. I will make your name great. If you follow as my servant David did, then I will make your, your generations to last. And Jeroboam's response, actually, I like this golden calf idea. I'm still going to do it my way. And so God says, okay, if that's how you want to do it, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I still remember being a little boy and hearing this story. And so a prophet comes up to Bethel, and we don't know the name of him. A prophet shows up in Bethel, and a pro the prophet denounces the calf and denounces Jeroboam and describes all these terrible things that are going to happen. Jeroboam reaches out his hand to strike down this prophet and his hand shrivels up. And the prophet says, there will come a king named King Josiah who will come up here and he will destroy this place. That's not gonna happen for hundreds of years, a few hundred years. It's not gonna happen for a while, but King Josiah is actually going to come, a child of David, and he gives this promise, the king's hand shrivels up, and then at that moment, the king, please help my hand, and the prophet prays, and his hand is restored, and the prophet walks away. There is this promise that Josiah, king of the south, is gonna come and is going to actually destroy these things. Um, you actually have, and I, we don't have time to talk about it, but in 2 Kings 23 is the story, actually, of the King Josiah going up and actually accomplishing that. He goes up and he destroys it. Um, uh, we will, when we're in Israel on the 28th, I didn't get to see this site, but I actually have pictures. I thought about having it. I have, I've been right there. I have a picture they have, they have unearthed the temple area in the city of Dan where King Josiah and his armies came up and leveled the place. And they actually have like a, uh, like a marker outlined where that golden calf was. And it was a pretty powerful experience actually because Josiah is one of my favorite kings. And to just kind of sit on these steps just kind of off of that and think like this is where one of those golden calves were. Was, is a pretty powerful, pretty powerful moment. Um, so this is kind of the natural bent that we're actually going to see from the north and the south. The south is going to have a series of problems, but the north is just hell-bent 
on idolatry and uh, complete rejection of who God is. So then God ultimately rejects Jeroboam, and not only that, but he actually takes the life of his first son, Abijah. Um, his son becomes sick. Jeroboam says, because no, this is another interesting phrase that we'll actually see, is that the prophets who stand over the kings, remember Ryan talked about that last week. So you have the king, and who's the one that's over the king? It's actually the prophet, because the prophet represents God. And to get the king's attention, the prophets basically say, we're not gonna talk to you. Go, 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 you want, you, want, you want idols? Go talk to them. Go talk to them. Yahweh is closed off to you. And so now Abijah, which is Jeroboam's son, is sick. And so he tells his wife, dress up like somebody so they don't know that you're my wife. And will you go talk to a prophet and find out whether or not our son will live? And so she dresses up and the Lord appears to the prophet and says, she's coming and tell her. And so she shows up and I know exactly who you are, he says. And as soon as your foot steps on the threshold of your home, your son will die. And not only that, because your husband, Jeroboam, has decided to do evil in the sight of the Lord and to make these golden calves, unlike his father, David, everyone in his family is going to die and the Lord will erase Jeroboam's memory from this place because of his evil and all he's done. And she leaves, you know, I've, this is where I always think, just don't go home and then what's gonna happen, right? But that's just Jim's thoughts, okay? Anybody else think about that sometimes? I'm just not gonna go home. Ha <laughs> ha, got you, God. Yeah, I don't think it works like that, by the way, okay? I don't know if you can do a got you, God kind of a thing. And so she goes home and as soon as she walks up, the child dies. And then Jeroboam, a little while after that, actually dies. Um, and so you have uh, a lot of failure in this. We literally have not only the failure of, uh, of, of Solomon, but you also have the failure of Rehoboam and then the failure of Jeroboam. So failure, failure, failure. What do you do? Well, you remember, like, God is serious about this stuff. Like, what's my take home from this? Like, God takes this obedience and disobedience seriously. Yeah, so I should stop doing bad things, right? Like I should stop doing bad things, and then what? That's not the point. This is, it's not about not doing bad things. It's about recognizing that when we truly understand who God is, and, and worship's not just singing, but to literally to give our lives completely to him and to trust him with his provision and his protection is what honors him. I love the fact that the Bible challenges me to rethink my understanding of evil. And not to bring it into my own hands. Like I think, Again, I think that's one of the problems that the church makes. Uh, religious zealots, they decide, hey, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna take over. Well, actually, that's a dangerous thing. Paul even says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will repay. Jesus tells us, actually, to turn the other cheek. That's what he tells us, love our enemies. That's what he says. But I need to have not a worldly understanding of evil and a worldly understanding of what is wrong, but God's. And so I have a young man who lives with me who doesn't worship Yahweh. He worships someone very different than Yahweh. And so I, I like going in sometimes and uh, giving him a hug and telling him that I love him. <laughs> Give him a big hug. And he laughs. And uh, I said, hey, by the way, I need to do that because Jesus loves you too. But then I point out on a regular basis 
but you do know like who you worship is wrong. I believe that. Like who you worship is wrong. And it does not, I even think that you are trying to make, you can do things and you can actually think that by doing these things you can make God happy. Right? People do it all through the Bible. People do it all, they think they're doing stuff that's going to make God happy. No, it's not. But God's not ambiguous about it. He gives us wonderful instruction and the greatest of all, wonderful instruction about how to please him so that we can receive his blessings. But if not, (laughs) then we face his judgment. Praise be the name of the Lord. Love you guys, and we will see you Sunday.